Welcome to Ask AI, the podcast that brings you insightful interviews and news from the world of Canadian artificial intelligence. This episode is sponsored by Microsoft Canada. Microsoft is committed to building trusted and responsible AI systems. To learn more, go to microsoft.com AI and check out their free AI business school to start building intelligence into your solutions today. We're also sponsored by Cinchi, the global leader in data fabric technology. Visit cinchi.com to learn how to eliminate integration and turbocharge your AI transformation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Ask AI podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Kahn. I'm so excited to start off this next episode here. We're lucky enough to be joined by Jean-Francois Gagné, who is the CEO and founder of Element AI, where he leads the strategic vision of the company. He's widely sought by large organizations for his ability to make sense of AI technology across industry contexts, and he puts his insights to work with the Element AI team to enable human-machine collaboration in the next generation of work. JF has had a long history, over almost 20 years as an AI entrepreneur. Uh, he started and sold two companies in the AI and operations research space. And previously, he was the chief product officer and chief innovation officer at JDA Software, where he was the youngest global C-level executive of a top 20 enterprise software company. Wow. JF, we're so glad to have you here on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here, Jackson. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. And just as a quick disclosure to our listeners up front, several months ago, I was a brief contract writer with Element. They were a great company to work for. I no longer do any work with them, but I'm excited to have stayed in touch with them and to be interviewing with JF today. So JF, can you give us a background on Element AI and, and how did it come to this point? Absolutely. And it's been four years now. Last week, just end of October, we launched the business. It's been feeling dog years, actually. Fair enough. <laughs> it's uh, It went really fast. Altogether, we, we've been in business, the founders, before, but really this time with Element, our goal was to, you know, aim for a more impactful organization, more ambitious goals that we've set for ourselves to really bring artificial intelligence into, into the workplace and focus on the enterprise. We knew a little bit about, you know, what was needed to be done and what needed to change and what were the opportunity. But boy, we've learned over the last four years, it's been quite of a journey. So that brought us here. The organization, you know, serves customers around the world. We've got offices in Montreal, Toronto, in Canada. We've got an office in London. We have a presence in Seoul and South Korea and also an office in Singapore, we're uh, north of over 300 people working in the company, mostly selling to large global uh, enterprise. It's been quite a journey, like I said, and and so many interesting learnings along the way. That's so incredible. And looking back, was there a specific moment or catalyst to starting Element AI? Was there some a conversation that happened or a moment where you realized this was the right business to start at the time? There's been a few, but I'll tell you that really for us, if we remember 2014, 2015, when uh, AI started to work at scale, I'd say, and there's been DeepMind beating the world champion of Go, uh, there's a few moments that kind of started to prove that we were starting to have enough computing power and models were starting to be robust enough that they could be helpful in complex environments. So I'd say that there's been that. And then the other, the other piece was, a lot of the, let's say, emerging player in the enterprise space actually exiting their business. These are kind of cycles 
But in 2015 and during 2016, quite a few of significant players that could have been playing in the same realm of what LMNAI is focused on got acquired, thinking MetaMind by Salesforce and thinking Dato by uh, Apple. And uh, I mean, a lot of other acquisitions like that, which kind of opened up a window of opportunity for Element AI to go after. That's remarkable. And it's a real testament to sort of the Canadian AI dream and, and how you've been able to pull together those resources to put you know, a firm together at the, the magnitude of elements. I'm wondering now specifically, what problem today does Element AI solve and how, how has that evolved since, since you initially started the organization? The goal was from the very beginning to figure out how to create a collaboration between business people and artificial intelligence software. We've described it in very different ways, like over the last four years, and I guess it's going to probably still evolve. But that's been kind of the main area of focus for us. How can we bring to people who make decisions every day additional support, amplification, and you know, kind of remove from them a lot of the mundane aspect of the task, or let's say, do kind of the evolifting part of the task. And so that's been our motivation. We think that this is going to apply to so many tasks around an enterprise, whatever sector you're in, if you're in insurance and finance or in manufacturing and retail, etc. What we've discovered engaging with the market over the last couple of years are, are some opportunity where we could get going with this. And I'll point one out which is the need for people to actually receive documents that are structured in different ways, written in natural language, and extract key insights out of these documents, key pieces of information, and then make decision on top of it. One very easy example you can all understand are the long, I don't know, like 20-page form you may fill when you're submitting to an insurer your personal information in order to get an insurance quote. Either it is for your business or it's for your car, or your house, etc. The process of you know you writing down information, exchanging email, and then on the other side, the insurer having to essentially figure out what product you need and price it is quite frictionful, actually. We've built a, a product called Document Intelligence that is full of AI models that helps people who are going to receive your information, helps them extract this information, even if it's handwritten on a piece of paper, it's through an email, be able to extract the insights and the information, organize it, figure out if there's additional questions that are required, find the right product to propose to you, and then find also the right price. So that's an example of one of the products that we've built that we now have. And really what I'll bring the, your attention to is the nature of the interaction that the user is having with the AI. It does not require any data science people, does not require any AI expert. As you're using the system, the system learns from that interaction with people. It scores the interaction based on the outcome and essentially feeds itself so that it can improve on an ongoing basis. It goes from you know, at the beginning, just making simple recommendation to even driving full-on automated decision-making once the confidence level is, is reached. So these are the kind of products that Element AI builds. It's super exciting, JF, on a number of fronts. 
you know, I'm particularly interested to see how it can ultimately affect decision making. I wanted to challenge you a little bit, though. I know we, we've heard so much hype on AI over the last few years. You know, we've seen billions of dollars be invested by both companies and governments. Where do you think, as you're talking about some of this, where, where have the results in the market failed to meet the hype? And how is Element AI doing differently? We're still on a journey. I'd say that it's one thing to get a new kind of technology to work. I'll meet you to parallel with electric cars. The electric motor got figured out 100 years ago. Of course, you'll tell me, well, the biggest innovation required for electric car to work are batteries. And that's fair. Yet, you know, getting electric motor to interact with batteries is something that we know really well. Yet, making cars, so a full system that really takes advantage of all the advantage that, you know, that combination of battery plus electric motor brings is actually not straightforward and quite complicated. And the car you're going to design can be quite different than, you know, a thermic engine. And I can go on. The infrastructure that you're going to need for your electric cars are going to be also quite different. It's different in a gas station. It has advantages, but also it has some disadvantages. And it means that you may have to wait longer to get your, your car to build up enough energy to get you from point A to point B. Just pausing on the metaphor, uh, if you bring it to artificial intelligence, AI software is different than traditional software in many, many ways. The key aspect that is different is these systems are not only programmed by engineers that write down rules. These systems are programmed by engineers and data. And this is a quite of a change in terms of how you're going to you know, have the right governance around it, how you're going to build the right tools so people can filter the data that will get to the system, what will the system actually capture from the data, what will it learn, is there bias in there? There's a lot of infrastructure and tools that are required to actually get the system to perform. So it's one thing to have, you know, a researcher in a lab curating a set of data on a specific problem, proving that, wow, like we can get an AI model to write a full-blown article or to like create a very cool podcast like the one we're doing here. But like it's another one to build systems that are in the hands of people who actually make decisions, business folks, or even consumers, make sure that they're safe, make sure the infrastructure is in place, make sure the right transparency is there, that we've got proper governance, the right rules, and I can go on with the list. <laughs> so essentially, yes, there is hype because it works, but it's still a long way to go before this is going to be ubiquitous because it will. But before we really reach a point where we have the technology all around us and we have full control of it, this is still a long way to go for us in the future. Definitely. I feel like, you know, we've seen multiple, <laughs> I think like multiple iterations of the hype cycle happen over the last few years. And, you know, we, we had a huge, I feel like, buzz of news in particular a few years ago and, and maybe now some realities setting in. And then some things are, you know, very, very possible and other things are, are still a few years off. But I mean, that, that's the exciting thing, right, is we, we can work towards those outcomes and, and hopefully see some incredible results. In terms of what's coming at Element AI, what, what do you think your edge is in the market? So I think we, we've really figured out unique patterns of having user interact with systems. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about our Document Intelligence product, I can talk about our, our Knowledge Scout product, which is a natural language interface where people can literally 
in natural language, ask questions, and then interact with body of knowledges that can be highly specialized in the finance sector and the manufacturing sector Mm -hmm. and get answers from the system. So we've really made a lot of progress in the interaction design, and that's really what mattered for us. We're now going to be making, using these two pieces of platform, a lot of progress in an ever more growing number of use cases. But I think that uh, it took us a lot of energy and time to figure out how to train models, how to actually let them be in control of users. When is it that you want to protect a user? When is it you want to give them control, etc.? I'm really proud of uh, you know the state of the products that we have and, and what they're able to do. Of course, right now it's on a small number of use cases, but as the company is growing and we're accelerating, we're going to expand these number of use cases in ever more area of the business and ever more uh, growing number of industry. That's very exciting, JF. I'm really excited to see where where that could go in the future. And, you know, proud and, and interested in that that innovation can come from Canada. I think that's incredibly exciting. Do you want to walk through maybe a, just a high level, a bit more in detail about how your actual product works? I already give a little bit of a highlight on one of our product, Document Intelligence. What's interesting, digging a bit deeper with that product, and I'll draw parallel to uh, some other area where we're applying the same approach, is the fact that we can start with no data and have still the ability to provide value to a user. So of course, we we use data to pre-train models, but meaning that from the get-go, someone can configure a task, which is, for instance, extracting information out of a out of documents like bill, bill of lading or receipts or you know invoices or uh, even like legal docs, uh, legal documents, and then can start to extract information and document what's meaningful for them in a very seamless way inside the product. And the product will start to learn like, oh, like what are these fields you're interested in? Where are they in the context of you know a document or something? And as you're doing the work, we're going to be able to observe the interaction that the user has with the piece of information. And at the end, they're going to make some decisions, and we're going to be able to observe that too. As fast as five to 10 interaction later, the system will be able to make recommendations that are going to be highly accurate already, meaning that most of the time, the recommendation that they're going to make is going to be the correct one. So as you're going to inject another instance of a document, it will be able to find in there, like, hey, this is the price, this is the number of items, this is the inventory level, this is the name of the customer, this is the address, this is a postal code, this is the invoice number or the document number, it's on page 72 or this and that, and then we'll be able to start to make good recommendation. Not long after, as it sees more and more, and then the user confirms these recommendations, it can also switch to a fully automated experience. Of course, it always evaluates its confidence level in making a decision. And whenever that confidence is not high enough, it will bring a user in the loop and then essentially ask the user to confirm or infirm or correct the piece of information that the system is not fully confident about. That interaction and the overall product design, I'll come back to it, is a very novel way of structuring work 
And this can apply way beyond extracting information into documents. We're starting to apply this in manufacturing, for instance, around anomaly detection. We're starting to look at ways to use that in the financial world around the time series forecasting type use cases. We're starting to look at other use cases or other types of decision in the enterprise. Either it's HR related, it's administrative related, finance related, where these kinds of interaction to bring in, we observe what's being done, start to make recommendation. And then once we reach higher degree of confidence can start to drive full on automation. That's incredible, Jeff. I mean, so many different things to tease out there. The, the one in particular that I was interested in was how you're going beyond, I think you said, document intelligence, but then applying that, did you say over to manufacturing? Yes. Did you take lessons from that and then apply it to manufacturing? Yeah. The idea here is for manufacturing anomaly detection, you're going to have different types of models that can detect things that are going wrong. And then you're going to have quality analysts make a decision around a situation. And that can be, you know, data that comes from a production line. It can be images of a certain piece of work or certain process. And then they need to make an analysis if the anomaly or what is suspected to be an anomaly is really one, and then do a root cause analysis of why it came to be and how to fix it. So if you think of that iterative process, again, it's really easy for us to capture at different step of that process how people are making decision and what was the data and the context that they had access to, whether it's an image, it's different types of data that are fed, and then what's the end decision? Was it really an anomaly or it wasn't? And then the beauty with AI models properly designed, they're going to be able to correlate and find very subtle piece of information and the initial context that really improve that prediction power of detecting further anomaly in the future. But the fact that this is constructed around a full task, that's where the parallels draw, where you know the environment that watch how the user is making a decision and how this is documented, and then the feedback loop that essentially, as you're making more decision, you retrain and retrain and retrain your model that gets to a point where you know you get very, very accurate recommendation. That pattern, that way of designing the experience, that is something that goes across all sorts of tasks in the enterprise. And I, I, I think that's one of the key highlights and one of the hedge that uh, Element AI has built. It's remarkable to hear how you have picked up insights from perhaps different areas or practices of work and then, and then reapplied them or continue to develop and iterate on them in, in other instances. I'm really interested by that I guess, like cross-functional work and how you've been able to apply your product to so many different verticals and, and the learnings you got from there. And I know there are so many different applications that, that you've mentioned there are out there. One of the questions, though, that, that is really top of mind is how you're simultaneously helping your customers to, as they pursue these applications, to incorporate ethical considerations. They come relatively naturally, meaning that, of course, it's going to depend on each use cases. You're thinking insurers, you're going to think about all sorts of personal piece of information that needs to be, needs to respect privacy and, and other uh, regulations that are out there. These environments are relatively well structured from the get go. In other environments or for other types of tasks, looking for biases and data, looking for model drift, 
situation, all sorts of behaviors like that just comes with our customers, our users uh, implementing the right governance around it. So I think what's more important to focus on, and I'm not saying that it's more important than being ethical, because I'm going to get to the ethical piece, but what's really important to focus on is the governance process that needs to be in place with these kinds of systems, meaning that you need to have the right tooling, the right reporting on the data that you're going to use. You need to have the right controls, the right reporting around how the users are training these models and interacting with them. And then you need to have the right reporting on the models themselves. And if you do that well, and you get a a good governance approach to it, you will be facing some ethical consideration. But these ethical guidelines should be in your organization anyways, right? It just adding the right governance, the right reporting tools enables you to connect the dots, what should already be in place. And I think that's where some people got blindsided or let's say didn't make the right level of investments in the past and got into tricky situation because the right governance was not in place. Not because they were not ethical people or ethical organization. You can maybe bring some very... Some, some, let's say, situation about some organization, but most organization out there, you know, <laughs> they're doing the right thing and they want to do the right thing, but they got blindsided because they didn't have the right governance. So I think the real focus should be getting the right governance in place. I know Element AI is often seen to be a leader on this topic, particularly in Canada. And, and I know there's also some international and thought leadership work that you do. If there was one takeaway for the average sort of organizations pursuing an AI strategy to take away on the governance side, what do you think that would be? What would you recommend to start with? I think the most important thing to assess, I have a full blog post on the topic of uh, you know governance and AI on my blog. So I'll just plug my blog here as a, a full reference, jfgagne.ai. If I have to point out one thing, I think it's the fact that it's not enough to just monitor and consider your engineers, if they're engineers or your, let's say, software provider. These systems have a piece of software that needs to be properly designed. They have users that needs to also do the right thing and are also impacted by data. So your governance model needs to account for each of these three and the combination of the three. And I think that that's what's really important for people to understand. If you're not watching one of these angles, that's when you know, you're going to run into all sorts of problems. You got to make sure that the data pipelines that are coming to your models are properly managed, that the users understand and have the right level of control over the things that they care about, and that the models themselves, the way they're structured, their objective function, et cetera, is also properly configured. And it's only when you have these three pieces properly organized that you're going to have a safe environment to run your model on. I think that's a really valuable high-level takeaway for listeners. So thanks very much, JF. Did want to shift the thread of the conversation to just some general questions and, of course, probably some inevitable questions about the COVID-19 situation around the world. How do you think the pandemic has has affected this business and, and AI investments in general? And alternatively, I mean, what opportunities does it present? It slowed things down a little bit. Artificial intelligence investment comes kind of a bit later in the digital transformation journey that organization goes through. I think on a five-year horizon, the current pandemic 
will have accelerated the adoption. I think on the 12 to 24 months horizon, it actually slowed it down a little, meaning that every organization are impacted. I think it creates an unprecedented need for them to digitalize. I think the return on investment is clear. Yes, it is for how we consume goods and products, but I think more than ever before, the flexibility and the agility that proper digitalized business brings is just far outweigh any other short-term opportunity that they may be facing, right? So like the investments are going over there. And once you've digitalized your business, that's when you're properly set to be able to use AI models, AI software, go to next step. That's where I'm seeing that we'll see an acceleration of the adoption of AI probably next year and in the year after for sure, because that foundation piece of digitalization will be will have been put in place. That's where really the pandemic is uh, having a short-term impact. Yeah, I think that's right on point. And, and what I'm wondering as well is I know Element does some work, I believe, with the Canadian government, even often represents Canada abroad on, on the topic of AI. How do you think the overall response has been? How has the government been performing during the pandemic? And And what do you think we should be doing next to rebuild our economy nationally? There's a lot going on. It's always hard in the short term to, you know, properly assess if things are really uh, impactful. And I'm passing on like more, let's say, image of things like some of the emergency response plan that got put in place. But I'm thinking about here more of the big, broader investment areas, the relaunch of the economy type thing. I think it's going to take a little bit of time before we see it. Now, I mean, what can government do? Uh, I've been relatively vocal here where I do believe that investing in the foundations of a good digital economy is very, very important. I think if you if you have to invest somewhere that's clearly an area where you're going to win and where that return on investment is not going to be over 10 years, but a much shorter horizon. So I think that the business case there makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking of all sorts of digital infrastructure. I think that we should certainly expand our views and what digital infrastructure means. It's not just networks. It is networks, but it goes beyond. And I think in this new era, it has to be about digitalization of services, the investment in data as an infrastructure. I'm a strong believer that a lot of data assets, either it's around languages or it's around satellite information, it's around information in cities, information about all sorts of things that are related to Canada. I think that the government has a big, much bigger role to play in enabling these data assets to be created. So it creates an opportunity for business to innovate. I'll just use language, for instance, but for all the language important to Canada, we should have just a broad digital infrastructure that enables any Canadian company or anyone to train language models at scale, accurate, that are going to take into account adjectives and verbs and nouns that make sense to Canadian in, in English and French and, and maybe you know more languages that are represented here. I think that uh, this is an innovation opportunity 
where you're enabling suddenly startups to leverage that. It's to the benefit of Canadians because they're going to be better understood by systems that leverage that information. And you're lowering the barrier to entry for innovation. So overall, everybody wins. And when you're thinking about new kinds of infrastructure, this is a good example. And there's many, many other examples like that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Jeff. I think that's quite an expansive and, and inclusive vision for what is possible. I personally have been quite supportive of efforts to ensure, well, number one, that people don't fall behind and, and the government has has absolutely been uh, working on that with basic income and, and the CERB income. And, I, and I'm really hopeful that people have the bridge that they need during this time to, if, if for sure, if they want to start a business or, or, or want to innovate on something that they that they can do so. But but two, that means they don't have to sacrifice their entire livelihood to do it because it is a real time of change. No, it is. And when you're thinking about the biggest barrier to entry to do AI, you know, you could get an account and have some computing relatively cheaply. You can find a friend or if you, you know, work hard enough, like find some people who can help you code and you can find some open source. What's the real barrier to entry? It's large data sets that you could start to leverage in order to train AI and build a new service or like, uh, you know, be able to accomplish a new task and, and do these things. And really where it costs a lot of money, it's when you need to invest in, in labeling data, gathering data, organizing data, that's really, 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 really hard. And that's, that costs a lot of uh, money to, to, to build and to maintain. And when you're thinking about things that should be commoditized, there's lots of areas where, you know, it's the, the national benefit to just have some very large amounts invested in maintaining and creating data assets that can be used by Canadian corporation to then in innovate on top of. A hundred percent. And I know, you know, the topic of citizen data has been has been really top of mind recently, for example, with the Sidewalk Labs project, as, as well as even the COVID alert apps. Well, have you been thinking about this a lot recently? Like, I'm wondering, you know, in general, kind of some of your thoughts around how the concepts of, you know, of control of your own data, of the portability of your data, you know, even with GDPR recently, there's been the concept of a right to be forgotten. There's a lot of questions around data custodianship right now, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that and how that's been progressing. It's been an area of interest for a very long time. We've been at the forefront of pushing ideas like uh, data trusts as a way to organize, maintain, and, and have the right governance of, uh, of data. In that, I mean, we're now at a point where, as much as it does cost a lot of money, back to my previous point, still where a gathering unprecedented level of data at an unprecedented level of precision, it is within reach. This brings a lot of uh, interesting opportunities, but also questions where public environment suddenly can be documented to a point where behaviors or moments that used to be, yes, out in the public, but relatively anonymous are now perfectly documented and, and then retained forever on art drives, right? When you think of the regulations that got written out 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they didn't have that in mind in terms of, uh, yeah, of course. You know, how things should be managed. So point here is we need to redefine our social contract when it gets to privacy and when it gets to uh, what's public or not. I don't think we need to go to extreme positions. The point is just that we need to redefine these frontier of uh, when is it I have control? When do I lose control? 
what does control means. There's a lot of nuances. And, uh, and then we need the right bodies in place to make sure that that social contract is enforced and, and, and that you know, users and people are represented. And the idea of data trust essentially goes to that. It's a neutral trust that holds a certain types of data to the benefit of uh, beneficiaries and essentially ensures that the way that data is managed and the way it is leveraged goes along with the contract that was agreed upon with the people. So it can be you know, information about your face. It could be information about who you contact. It could be information about public spaces. And all these things could be old and being managed by, by data trusts and have the right level of transparency and control. Uh, again, I think we're at the very beginning of these conversations where we also need as a society to make a, a decision about what kind of control we want to keep individuals on that data. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What does public environment mean? And what kind of leverage do we want to give businesses when your data is being used, even though, you know, in exchange of, you know, getting a service or getting a product, what kind of dynamic do you have between the users and and the provider service? And do you truly have an alternative in lots of these situations? You truly have an alternative to the service or you're forced to use a certain service and then be forced into uh, a certain dynamic when it gets to how your data is managed. 100%. And I think we're really seeing this come to the forefront right now with the recent U.S. Department of Justice antitrust lawsuit against Google for you know effectively having a monopoly over search. And it gets mixed up. These are adjacent conversations. When combined, it creates really bad situation, but they're, they're kind of adjacent conversation. Yes, there's the antitrust conversation. There's the privacy conversation. There's the data control conversation. It's one thing for my data to not necessarily be private. It's another one that my level of control over it, my level of consent over it, and my option to opt in, opt out, or give certain degree of control. There's multiple layers to this conversation. But yeah, if you combine a service that essentially is like dominant, you need to use it to get access to information and knowledge. And that service essentially mean that you're going to be tracked and monitored and you won't have full control over your that data you don't you may actually not even know where that data goes and what it is used for then these situations are are edge situation but quite problematic and we need to decide how, how we want to to manage these you know i remember when the entire facebook debacle in particular was happening after the 2016 election. One of the most meaningful articles that came out was, it was a little bit to what you were speaking to before, but it was something about you are the product. And it was, you know, if you mentioned, as you mentioned, like if you're often getting services, online services for free, there is some money happening there. And, and in that case, you know, with Facebook or some of these other larger companies, sometimes you, know, you are the product, you are what is being monetized. And I think there's growing awareness around that actually being the reality. People, you know, choosing to opt out from time to time. And I suppose what I'm interested to see, and I think it's, I think what you have a pretty strong perspective into is how does that happen? I suppose when we are maybe required to use online services for essential parts of our lives, for example, to access government services, maybe now that everything is 
seems to be going on remote more and more with all of our jobs. Like what, what if everything we're accessing truly is online in our lives, the essential parts of our lives? And in that case, where does our data go? How is it managed? I feel like these conversations in recent times have taken on an even more significant magnitude of how important they are to our daily lives. Yeah. And I think the first step here is to ensure that the proper transparency is in place. Honestly, like if we've got one place to start making a change, it's around transparency. And so a lot of the work that I've done personally, like I was involved with a high-level expert group on AI in Europe. We produced a full report. I chaired part of it on trustworthy AI. How do we make sure that AI is trustworthy? One of the key conclusions is, hey, actually, a lot of the regulation, the law, like the, the principle, they're all in place. Like it's just that we don't have transparency. So we don't know that a lot of things that we've decided as a society a while ago, we, we don't like these things. We just don't know what's happening. It's unclear. It's blurry. It's hard for people to rally in and actually act on some of that stuff. And it's because of lack of transparency. Like I don't know exactly my telecom provider. Probably I should, but like I don't know if my, what my telecom provider is keeping track of. Like websites I visit, IP addresses for how long? Do they keep track of that? Can they monetize on this? Do they keep track of what cell phones are are using my my internet connection and their MAC address? And so can they know like actually who is actually visiting me and who am I close to or not? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But like I just don't have any transparency on these level of details and it's just hard probably some people will be listening to this and say yeah yeah you can you can know like you can write here an email and a request and this and it's just not easily transparent and i think for an ever-growing number of digital services that we're getting what's important is like to the contrast of the physical world we need to plan and work at providing the right transparency when it's physical if i'm giving you a car like you're going to see the car, you can touch it, you want to see how it works, you can open it up and, you know, you can dig into it. But with digital services, it's not that obvious, but we need that to be in place, that layer of transparency so that a lot of the regulation and the law that already exists are just going to come into play and that they'll get much easier right from there. JF, I can't believe how much we got through in just over 40 minutes. <laughs> Thanks so much for, for sharing so much with us today. Really, you know, I, I wish we could take that conversation forward even more on transparency, upfront data, collection practices, maintenance practices. There's so many conversations in the AI space. You're really at the forefront of so many of them. Great to have you on the podcast as one of the top AI leaders in Canada. Any last things that you just want to share with the audience? Anything upcoming for you, Element AI? Lots of things happening on that side. I mean, one thing that is uh, we're, we're launching in the next couple of days. Uh, so by the time you guys listen to the podcast, it may be actually out there. You can look on my blog. It's a AI talent report. It's a global report. A lot of energy goes into it. Lots of collaboration and partners are helping out. And it's a full assessment of how the talent pool has been evolving globally around AI. We heard about how talent was scarce and how Canada had an advantage around AI talent, especially at the state-of-the-art top-level AI talent. I've been having an interest on that and the dynamic and the evolution of that talent over the last couple of years. So the, the new reports coming out, there's interesting findings in there, trends around diversity, et cetera. So uh, you can go have a look 
I'm sure uh, for you, there'll be uh, some interesting insights to take away from the report. Well, thanks so much, JF, for that. To all our listeners, we'll make sure to post that alongside the episode. You can again find us on social media, on Twitter at AskAI.org, or go on our website, AskAI.org, where we'll post all these links and the podcast and everything you like just up there. Thanks again, JF, for joining us today. And thank you again to all of our listeners. Really looking forward to sharing this out with you in two episodes to come. JF, thanks again. Thank you, Jackson. Thanks for listening to the Ask AI podcast. The executive producer was Chris McLellan. Additional production support was provided by Olina Mack and Kristen Riddell. To learn more about our webinar and chatbot projects and get information about sponsorships and volunteering, please visit our website at askai.org or email info at askai.org. Listeners can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Just search Ask AI. <laughs>